Good morning. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. Scott Radley in for Rick Zamprin today. So much to get to today, starting with a proposal by a city councillor to cap municipal tax increases. Ted McMeekin, Ward 15 councillor, is going to join us to talk about his idea on that one. We're going to be chatting about why Canadians seem to be so much angrier these days and what you can do about it. Auto thefts and how that's affecting your car insurance. For some of you, it's affecting it a lot. You may not even know it at this point. Indigo is trying to change their stores, at least one of the main ones, a tester, into a cultural emporium with alcohol and household products. How do we think that's going to go? We'll be chatting about taking photos underwater, like way underwater, rib fest, covid Not that you love the last one, I know, but it's important. And so much other stuff. Stick around. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. There has been a lot of consternation over the last little while since a number of city councillors said we're heading for a 10% at least tax increase coming up this year. A lot of people saying, "Uh, I don't know about that. That's uh, starting to get a little rich for my blood. Well... In rides Ward 15 Councillor Ted McMeekin. He was speaking the other day and suggested that, you know what, maybe it's time to put a cap on what the city of Hamilton can do as far as raising taxes. Maybe a 4% tax cap is a good idea at this point because things are tough for people. I think that idea is going to resonate and make a lot of people feel hopeful and happy that someone is suggesting Let's put a limit on these things. Uh, let me bring in that man. He is, as I say, the councillor of Ward 15. His, net is, his name is Ted McMeekin. He joins me now. Ted, how are you this morning? Yes, good morning. Fine. How are you doing? I am well. I, uh, I have a feeling that uh, an awful lot of people are going to be saying very nice things about Ted McMeekin after, after hearing this suggestion. I have a feeling this is going to be a popular move. Well, we'll see. I mean, the message is pretty simple. Uh, people in my ward and uh, uh, throughout the city... Uh, are struggling. You know, it's tough up there. The cost of living's going up. Uh, the price of groceries is uh, escalating. Mortgage rates are at an all-time high. Food bank use is up 40%. It's uh, it's prudent, I think, to uh, consider uh, cutting the cloth to fit and to uh, put a cap on the on a potential tax increase. This has, I mean, you're not the first person to suggest this, but I can't remember another councillor suggesting this. Maybe I'm forgetting, and if I am, I apologize to that counselor who suggested this. I can't remember this, though. It's it's usually these kind of things are coming from outside the chamber. What was the moment or what was the thing or what was the impetus that finally made you decide this is something that I think I should mention or propose? Well, I meet with a community council, a select group of 40 people in my ward that know and love the community not just the Waterdown Flamborough community, but the city of Hamilton generally. Uh, they don't mind paying taxes, but they say, hey, they scream, in fact, uh, I want to see value for uh, the money that we invest in our city. And uh, and it's time. It's time that, uh, you know, we look at, uh, at uh, needs and wants and must-haves and make some decisions about, uh, about what we want to spend on. And uh, they point to the fact that the mayor, and, and to her credit, uh, led an exercise uh, recently around setting uh, Hamilton and council priorities. And uh, so we now have those in place. And uh, 
when you go through an exercise of setting priorities, that should uh, give someone some real direction to what kinds of things you want to invest in so that everybody's uh, newest proposal doesn't become everybody else's priority. It just mm. can't work that way. The, anytime you're going to put a cap on something... Uh, or put a hard budget on something. Uh, let, let's 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 use an example because we talk about this a lot around here with the NHL. The Maple Leafs, the NHL has a hard cap. They have they can only <clears throat> sign enough players that fit under the salary cap. It's the same idea, but what that requires, Ted, is when you have a hard cap, it requires some difficult decisions. You sometimes cannot get what you want. You're 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 having to make hard choices about what is a priority. I would argue that uh, councils passed have not always been great at making hard decisions that mean you can't always get what you want. Do you think that council would be up to this to say, okay, we can work with a cap, we can make these hard choices, and we can live with the fact that we're not going to get everything? Well, I hope so. And uh, I think the most important thing we need to uh, ensure is we have a debate about uh, about the issue uh, you don't do this in isolation. I mean, the community council uh, suggested the cap. Uh, we talked about it uh, over two meetings. Four uh, percent uh, or CPI, whichever is lower, seemed to be the consensus. Uh, I've chatted with uh, a good half dozen uh, of my council colleagues who seem to be sympathetic to the idea and supportive of an idea of a of a cap. Where where we end up on that? Uh, I can't predict. Uh, I'm not going to say today that if I put a motion on the floor for a 4% cap, it's going to pass. But I hope it does, and I hope we take it seriously and understand the uh, the kinds of pressures that uh, you know we're facing. I mean, last year we passed, a, after a lot of debate, uh, we went from about 9% down, finally down to about 5.84%. That included uh, hiring 144 new people. Uh, there was all kinds of new stuff that was done, and, uh, and and I supported that. It made sense to me to uh, pick up on the homelessness issue and on climate change and some other things. But you know what? You can't do that year after year after year, and that's why setting priorities is so darn important. Now, now the job is to uh, to commit to sticking to them. Mm. Uh, Councillor, we're short on time, but what, you had mentioned that you would be okay or, or willing to or looking forward to, I, I can't read the exact word, but bringing a motion forward. Do you have any idea on the timing for that? Is, is this something that is going to be imminent or does it take some work to figure out when this is done? When should we expect maybe to have this brought forward? Well, it takes some work. I want to speak to more of my colleagues because I'm, uh, I'm old school. I'm not a big believer in putting motions on the floor just to hear yourself talk. I uh, would hope that we could get something together that uh, uh, would uh, find uh, wider uh, wider support. I think we need to do it. I think now is a prudent time to do it. Uh, I've got uh, seniors uh, with no pension uh, still have mortgages on their house this week. You know, so you look at a 10% uh, uh, increase and uh, so I get thinking you know if some are speculating about 10, 12, 14% increase maybe someone should speculate about putting a cap on, on a tax increase I think an awful lot of people right now are sitting by their radios applauding and cheering on this one It's this is uh, I have a feeling this is going to be a popular move uh, Ward 15 Councillor Ted McBeacon thanks for joining us this morning to talk about it You're welcome all the best you're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Apparently, Canadians are getting angrier. 
We are an angrier people today than we once were. The, the light-hearted, easygoing, nothing bothers us Canadian of old is, uh, if that was a real thing, uh, is gone. We're apparently angry about everything. So why is that? And what do we do about that? Let me bring in Kayleen Edwards. She is from Roots in Wellness. She joins me now. Kayleen, thanks for doing this today. It's my pleasure. You don't sound angry at all. <laughs> no, not right now. All right. Well, you're, you're breaking the mold. Well, you know, there, are, there are lots of things I think that we can point to that are pretty obvious things that would make us this uh, financial situations that we've got and politics and uh, social media, maybe at the top of the list. What else? What, what are the things? What do you see as the things that are really making us get this way now? I think there's just so much pressure on people um, at this time. I think COVID added a lot of pressure financially. It added a lot of anxiety for a lot of people about health concerns. Um, there's also just a big divide right now. So we're seeing on social media, there's so much divisiveness between um, opinions with COVID, politics, um, and just all that's going on in the world. So I think all of those things together, um, and in addition to just being overexposed to news and information has contributed to everyone feeling more angry. Yeah, the fact that we now have a name for looking at social media and calling it doom scrolling probably is, is indicative <laughs> of what that whole experience is like. Exactly, exactly. And I think that's why one of the most important things is is trying to limit our time on social media. I know that's something that I do for myself of setting time limits on apps, specifically apps that you find more negative. So I find Facebook and Instagram can be a negative one for a lot of people. Um, so I think it's really important to, you know, be mindful of our exposure and in some cases limiting our exposure to those things. So that's always one of my top recommendations. Do you think that we, I mean, I started this by saying that we're a lot angrier now than we used to be. Do you think we are, or do you think, and I was wondering about this today, I mean, are we just more open to expressing it that we're, for whatever reason, is we're not quite as polite maybe as the polite Canadian of the past where we would have stifled it up and we just tell people now as opposed to what we did before? Yeah, I think it's a bit of both. I think that for sure, we're definitely more open. I think COVID really opened the door to a lot more people discussing mental health and being aware of mental health. So with that awareness of mental health, I think comes people being more readily to express their emotions, whether that's anger, sadness, frustration, whatever the case may be. So I think it's both the case of people are more willing to express it. But I think also there's just been a lot of extra pressure the past few years that have probably also contributed as well. You never want to blame people for their own anger or mental health situations or anything like that. But with without sounding like we're blaming, are there, you've sort of alluded to the fact we can do some things to alleviate this. Yeah. I'm not going to, as I say, I'm not going to point the finger at someone and say, well, you're responsible for your whatever, but there are things we can do to help ourselves. No. Absolutely. I think there's always things that we can do to help ourselves, and I, and I think it's it's true, right? We're not to blame, and there's also things that we can do to adjust our lifestyle, to adjust our day to day, to help relieve some of this pressure, to help relieve some of this tension. So, if you are looking on social media a lot and finding yourself upset, are, is it, it should you not be pointing at yourself and saying, "I'm being self defeating, I'm being self harming"? Basically, here, should there be some? self-acknowledgement that I may be actually hurting myself. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, and I think it's all about the language that we use, right? So instead of saying like, of saying I'm hurting myself tends to have a lot of blame associated with it. I think of just maybe focusing on, you know, is this the ideal way I could be spending my time? Is this really helping me right now? Or is this hurting me right now? And I think that may be a less kind of uh, emotionally charged way 
<laughs> of recognizing that. And I think the more we can recognize it, the more we can do something about it. There are those who would say that if you feel something that you should let it out. So if you are feeling angry, are we helping ourselves if you lash out then and get it out of your system? Or is that hurting because it exacerbates the problem and now you're making someone else angry and they're going to be angry back and then it goes on and on? Yeah. And I mean, research is very mixed on this. There is some research that says the more we let it out and lash out, because that used to be the old kind of idea, right? If we just don't let bottle it out, it up. Yeah, don't punch bottle a punching it up. bag, then we'll feel better. Um, and I think what we know now is that it's not necessarily about, you know, lashing out as the most productive way, but I think of, of letting out kind of those day to day stressors of being able to have people that you can talk to about, you know, this was really frustrating today at work or people you can feel a little bit more vulnerable to share just some of the more minor day to day things. And I think the more we do that, it's like slowly releasing that pressure, right? So that we don't get to that point where all of a sudden we're exploding and we have kind of, as you said, an episode of lashing out. You mentioned the pandemic or COVID and I mean, some will argue that COVID is still around, whatever, be that as it may. We're not in the same circumstance as we were back in 2020, 2021. So why then are some of the things that happened then that made us this way sticking with us? Why, When times have changed and our circumstance have changed, why are we still feeling the same way? Yeah. And I think... I think it's a number of things. I think a lot of people could look at trauma, uh, at, sorry, COVID as a traumatic event. So from that, I mean, there were a lot of things that nobody was expecting, right? There were times where we couldn't see family members, times where we couldn't do hobbies that we normally do, go to the gym, things that normally we do to support our well-being and make us happy and healthy. And I think because of that, it 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 was a traumatic event, right? There was a lot of uncertainty. There was a lot of fear. There was a lot of uh, estrangement from friends and family. And I think that that all contributes to this kind of stored trauma in the body. So I think even though the situation itself is in the past, that trauma is kind of still there and lingering within people. And I think some people more than others, some people uh, it may not have affected as much, but I think we all have some kind of lingering effects to it. And, you know, it's changed the way a lot of society works. A lot of more people are working from home. It's changed the way uh, a lot of jobs work. There's a lot more kind of computer jobs at this point. And I think all of that has sort of contributed to that dynamic. I've heard the phrase that it makes us revert to our lizard brain, all of this. Are, are, do you know what this term, have you heard this term? Yeah, absolutely. And, so, and, and what, that's what does it mean? kind of exactly it. Yeah. What does it mean to, to revert to our lizard brain? What exactly, what is that referring to? Yeah. So the lizard brain is, it's the, the back part of our brain. It's kind of the most prehistoric. So that's the most kind of animal part of us. And we as humans are special because our brains have developed to be very large and we have something called a, a prefrontal cortex, which allows us to have the ability to executive function. So to be able to plan things and to be able to not, you know, lash out right away and to be able to calculate, you know, how I'm going to do this work project or what do I need to get for my kid's birthday party? Um, when we're in a state of what we call flight or flight, so when things are really stressful, when there's a lot of cortisol in the body, that part of our brain tends to go a little bit more into the background, it tends to almost almost like it's shutting off a little bit and we revert back to that sort of animal flight. And, and that kind of animal part of our brain, it doesn't really have access to the same planning and the same sort of regulation that the front part of our brain does. So when we get into that animal sort of state, our, our kind of main two things that we do are either lash out <laughs> and fight, so to speak, um, or shut down. So that could look like, you know, just totally withdrawing, walking away, that kind of thing. So, mm. so that's what they mean by lizard brain. And I think a lot of people were in that sort of state when we were in COVID because there was so much uncertainty, there was so much fear around what was happening. Um, and I think that's definitely contributed as well. Mm. Uh, it's a fascinating topic because I, I do think that most people listening probably say, yeah, it does seem like people are angrier. 
Let's mm-hmm. let's hope that the day comes when we're not anymore. Uh, Kayleen <laughs> Edwards with from Roots in Wellness. Really appreciate you doing this. Thank you. It's my pleasure. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. I don't know what kind of car you drive if you drive a car, but you might want to listen to this next bit because depending what kind of car you drive could significantly, not a little bit, significantly affect your insurance rates because it seems as more and more cars are being stolen, certain types of cars are the favorites of those who are stealing them. And that is making insurance companies more than a little skittish these days. Daniel uh, Dan, Daniel Ivins with Scoop Insurance joins me now. How, how are you today? Good. How are you today, Scott? I am excellent. Thanks for doing this. Um, we've known forever that insurance premiums are not equal all across the board. Men for a long time or young men got higher premiums than other people. And I, I used to hear that red sports cars were higher premiums than, you know, neutral sedans, whatever. This, though, is this is directly related to what's going on with theft, correct? What's happening with the insurance rates? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, insurance rates are tied to uh, uh, losses. And so, you know, in the examples that you mentioned, you know, if young men are having more claims than young woman, women, they're, they're costing the insurance industry more money, more payouts in claims. And so they're a little more expensive to insure. And now with vehicles, very much the same thing. We're, we're seeing a, a number of vehicles that are being stolen a lot more frequently. And as a result of that, some insurance companies are beginning to take measures to account for those losses. Some of the names that I'm reading here of the very popular ones uh honda crv lexus rx series ford f-150 so if you own one of those should you be speaking to your insurance company and saying wait a second how much extra am i paying or is it just assumed you'll be paying more uh the the notices will be sent to consumers in the mail by their respective insurance providers so if your insurance company is surcharging a specific vehicle uh, you'll you'll receive that notice on your renewal uh typically what we're seeing is it's mostly you know newer vehicles usually around 2019 or newer and and the ob- other observation that we're making when we look down the list is that there's a lot of trucks and SUVs there uh, these are vehicles that are very desirable especially overseas and uh, with organized crime uh, especially you know around Ontario Quebec out in eastern Canada we're, we're poor port cities or, or port provinces, uh, we're, we're noticing an uptick in theft. So uh, specifically in Ontario, especially, uh, you know, where, where last year in, in 2022, I should say Canada in 2022, you know, the insurance industry reported that they lost, uh, you know, an estimated $1 billion uh, due to vehicle theft, which is way up year over year. And so they're having to account for that. You are not a car manufacturer. So maybe this is an unfair question to you, but if the manufacturers of these particular vehicles, they have to know that they are the desirable vehicles for thieves. Why are, we've got so much technology in cars now. I mean, there's just so much technology. Why are things not being put in that makes it impossible or almost impossible for them to be stolen? I don't know why, uh, why, uh, auto manufacturers do, uh, what they do. Um, but what I can say for sure, you know, you mentioned technology is that these insurance companies that are surcharging on these vehicles are giving consumers an option to have that money refunded back to them. Uh, a lot of them have stipulations where if a consumer installs a tag anti-theft device uh, or otherwise a steering wheel uh, club, they'll, they'll see uh, often a rebate or a complete refund of whatever the surcharge was uh, for that specific vehicle. Do you think that most people who buy one of these vehicles knows that they're buying something that is a target vehicle. Cause I mean, I could go into the d- dealership and I just, you know, I just look at a Ford F-150 and go, Oh, I got to have that, but I have no idea. Or do you think they do know this or does someone tell them this or is it a complete surprise when they get their insurance? Um, I, I don't know if anybody 
necessarily knows you know how how risk or how at risk the vehicle that they're buying for theft is but it's generally safe to assume if you're really excited about your vehicle uh you know a, a lot of criminals might be as well and so uh the, the more excited you are the more likely maybe it is that your vehicle is going to be stolen in a lot of cases and you know trucks and, and suvs and things like that are, are are universally very desirable and so as a consumer you know are, are you going to sit down and say well does this year make and model uh you know fit the docket you're not really going to know or really think about that in most cases, you know, the the tracking device, I think you mentioned a tracking device a moment ago is something that, that could work. Do they work? And I know they work technically. I know you can track them. But by the time you may know that your car has been stolen, because I'm assuming a lot of this happens at night in your driveway or whatever, or at a, at a mall or at a movie or something where you're not near your car for a couple hours. Are they not long, long gone by the time you would even notice that tracking device? The the industry itself seems to to perceive the tracking device to be very effective, which is to say, you know, if, if they're removing these surcharges when the consumer does install the tag tracking device, it, it suggests to me that, that there's data that exists that shows that the vehicle is going to be a lot easier to recover. Uh, in a lot of cases, when these vehicles are stolen, specifically vehicles that are being shipped overseas, uh, they're being stolen and parked in underground parking lots for a couple of days until they fall off the radar and then eventually, you know, moved into a shipping container. And in this case, if, if you do have a tag anti-theft system on your vehicle, uh, it'll a lot, it'll be a lot easier uh, for for uh, the police and uh, to find it um, if it, if that is the case and if it is being stored somewhere in, in the country. Daniel, I should have asked this right off the top. It's probably the first thing, but is this something new? I mean, thefts have always happened, but is the acceleration in thefts new? Uh, yeah, the data is showing, you know, we, we've mentioned a little bit earlier in the chat, you know, per Canadian underwriter, that that, that billion dollars estimated in, in, in losses due to, to thefts last year uh, is a massive increase year over year. And so uh, insurance companies are having to get, um, I, I mean, a little bit creative in terms of how, how to approach this and how to account for those losses. Any uh, any theory on why? And again, I've asked you a question for a car manufacturer. You're not one of those. Now I'm asking you a question as a cop and you're not one of those. But any theory on why this all of a sudden has taken off? Uh, you know, back in 2022, when, when we noticed this starting to take off, you know, what, what, what else was happening? You know, we saw supply chain issues, uh, yeah. creating a lot of domestic market for stolen vehicles. We had people that, that uh, were unable to get new cars for a very long time. The cost of used cars began to skyrocket. And, and, and so, uh, you know, I can't say for sure, but it, it'd be easy to draw the conclusion that that would have at least played a role in the increase in thefts. No, you know what? That's a, that's as good a theory as any, I suppose. Although you do also mention the, the cargo, you know, that it, I'm assuming many of these then end up overseas. They're not just going to get chopped up. They are going intact overseas somewhere. Yeah, a significant portion for sure. It is, um, it's a tough one, especially if someone is listening right now and they own one of these cars. They're going, wait a second. I, I didn't know this. Well, again, get one of those locking devices or anti-theft devices or tracking devices, as Daniel says, and uh, maybe you save a few bucks. Uh, it's a really interesting thing. Uh, Rates.ca uh, has a report on this. People can go look it up. Daniel Ivins, really appreciate you taking time today. Thank you for this. Uh, no problem. And can I just throw one more thing out Absolutely. there? Absolutely. Um, I think, you know, consumers, if, if they are receiving the surcharge in the mail, um, need to remember that that surcharge is only specific to their company. And there are a minority of companies that are doing this right now. So if a consumer does receive a surcharge in the mail for their vehicle, they see that they're getting a $500 increase. Uh, it's a good time to shop and find a company that isn't surcharging your car. Great suggestion. Daniel Ivins, thank you so much. Awesome. Thanks for your time today. Have a great day. Bye. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. You've gone into a Chapters store, now an Indigo store. I still call it Chapters, an Indigo store recently. Uh, you probably will have noticed 
it's not the same as it used to be. Once upon a time, when it was Chapters, it was a bookstore. It was almost exclusively a bookstore. Lately, that has been morphing into household products and other things like that. Uh, certainly up in the Meadowlands Indigo, uh, that is the case. Well, in Toronto, downtown Toronto, the new Indigo store has been reimagined again. And probably this is something that we will see if it works, spreading out to other ones. Uh, they will be serving pastries and coffee and beer and wine. There will be nooks dedicated to home fragrances and plants and popular Japanese graphic novels. Uh, there will be places to listen in, to jukeboxes and Pac-Man games and on and on and on. It is a completely new idea of what apparently the customer wants. But is this what the customer wants? Let's bring in Bruce Winder. He's a retail analyst. He's author of Retail Before, During, and After COVID-19. Bruce, how are you this morning? Hey, I'm doing pretty well. Thanks for having me on. Uh, well, I, we always love it when you come on and talk about these things. This is a, I don't want to say this is a departure, because as I say, I mean, certainly here we've seen Indigo stores moving towards this direction of less mm. books, more other stuff. But is this what people want. Do people want the experience when they shop that they're going to go and stay for an hour or two in a store, make it an afternoon, or do people want to go in and get out and get the thing they want and get on with their day? Yeah, it's a great question. And I guess time will tell and the results will speak to themselves, but I'm assuming that what Indigo has done is reached out and done some uh, consumer research and ask their customers, you know, their value customers, sort of what they want to see in terms of change. But it is a bit of a departure. It's it's become more of a lifestyle store, like a, they call it a lifestyle emporium, I think. Mm-hmm. Cultural emporium, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it's um, it's something where I guess the hope and, and the thing that sort of has piqued my interest is the interesting thing about the downtown Toronto store is that it's in uh, the well, as you mentioned. And um it's, it's a place where you have a lot of residential uh, apartments and condos and commercial. So it'll be interesting to see if people kind of wander down and spend a lot of time in the store if they're bored in their condo or bored at work. I mean, that, that might be a new formula for them that works where they're sort of already where traffic is versus needing to drive traffic to their stores. Because I just don't see anyone getting up in the morning and saying, let me go spend two hours in an indigo. I mean, some people might. But I think they're better off where they already have built-in traffic upstairs and people are just a little bored or they want to get out and they might wind up there for a while. So, I mean, what you're describing almost sounds like it would be a modern-day central perk. It's the, it's the friend's coffee shop yeah. below the building where you go and get... If, if it's residential above, that's where you go and gather and spend time with the people in the building. I mean, if that's the concept, that sounds almost like it makes a fair amount of sense, but you surely can't rely just on the people in that building. No, um, and, and that's the hope is that people, you know, maybe there's people who work there, people who would go in there to do it, but I just, I have a hard time, you know, seeing how they can draw people in there because books are so easy to buy online now, right? You mm-hmm. know, Amazon started 30 years ago with books and um, they become commoditized, right? So they're trying to look for other things to do, but they've been down this road before, in that they offered lifestyle products, you know, a decade ago, and it had a bit of success when it came out, but it kind of softened up after that. So, yeah, you know what? Um, it's a bit of a tough one. They're in a tough market, and they've had a lot of management changes, and I think they're going through a little bit of an identity, not identity crisis, but trying to sort of uh, reinvent themselves, and that's always a hard thing to do for a retailer. Yeah, and I, I agree with you a thousand percent about the books. You can buy books anywhere. The thing, though, that... um 
when you go on Amazon or whatever, you, you, you can get a taste from a page or two of a book. You'll get a little pricey of what the book is going to be. The one thing that you could always do at, cost, at, uh, at Indigo was you could at least read a little bit of it if you wanted to. Now, that may have turned you off the book, quite honestly, but, <laughs> but it seemed like it, it. maybe you're there for a bit, you have a coffee, and then you go, you know, I'm really enjoying this. I'm going to take this book. If there was a challenge I thought that they had, it wasn't the idea of be, giving people the chance to sample the books. It was that their prices were often considerably higher than you could get the same book on Amazon. So you go there and sample it and then go home and order it on Amazon. That was their problem, I think, or one of them. Yeah, that was one of them. And, and that's that's something that, believe it or not, Best Buy, you know, in a different vertical dealt with too. What Best Buy did is they launched a very aggressive price matching strategy. Is I'm sure Indigo, I think Indigo has a basket of goods, you know, that they say, okay, we're going to match Amazon on these. Um, so they need to make sure that the price is right, but that eats into their gross margins, which makes it hard to pay for the whole show of having all these other amenities there, right? So it's a tough one, tough math problem to solve. But I think, you know, they'd be they'd be happy if they got people to say, hey, you know what, when I wake up on a Saturday, I want to go to Indigo, curl up with a book, get a coffee or a beer, and spend a couple hours there, and maybe on the way out, if I see some things I like, you know, to read at home with, like a light or a pillow, I might pick those up too. How much is it going to be important then if you're doing this as a lifestyle thing? Because you can, as you said, you can buy all this stuff elsewhere, probably for cheaper. How important is it that the stuff that they are selling is unique so that you don't just go there? I mean, other than the books, because that's, you know, what it is, but that pillows or, or goblets or whatever you're going to buy there. How, how, how important is it that what you get there, you can't find elsewhere? I think it's massively important because consumers have their little phone in their hand and they can compare it really easily now. So that, that, and it's getting tougher to do that. You know, it's called differentiation and marketing where you have different products and you can charge a little more and maybe you have a little better quality or different branding. It's imperative, but it's getting harder to find product lines that aren't everywhere now. It's just because the size of Amazon, Amazon has 500 million products. And you yeah. look at someone like Timu from, from China, you know, every product now seems to be out there for everyone. So it's getting tougher to differentiate through product. Bruce, before we go, last thing, we only got a few seconds here. They are sure. offering alcohol in at least this main store in Toronto, probably will expand elsewhere. And yet at the same time, just this week, I read, you know, Canadians are getting off alcohol. A lot, few, a lot fewer people drinking. Regardless, um, is, is that going to be the thing that you turn it into a bar, basically? Is that the kind of thing that still works to lure people? Um, I think it'll be an interesting plus, but it's not a game changer from my perspective. It, it's interesting. We'll see what happens with it, but it's not going to pull them out of despair and bring them to the top of the retail heap by itself. It's interesting discussion. Uh, we will see. I mean, I know Tim Hortons tried the, uh, I don't know if they still have it. It was a really fancy testing place in Toronto. I don't even know if it's still going, but we'll, we'll see if this one works. Bruce Winder, retail analyst, author of ret- Retail Before, During, and After COVID-19. Either go to Indigo and buy it or buy it on Amazon. Either one, whichever one you like, but go buy his book. Bruce, appreciate it. Thanks for doing this. Take care. All the best. Lots more still to come here on Good Morning Hamilton. Stay with us. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. I want to bring in a guest here right off the bat because uh, he was just, I don't know what's the word, inducted, indoctrinated, whatever the word is, into the Guinness Book of World Records as the photographer who has taken the deepest underwater photo shoot, 21 feet underwater, did it up at Fathom 5 National Park up in Tobermory. 
His name is Steve Haney. He's a creator of uh, studios, uh, create of, uh, well, Steve Haney is a photographer. Steve, what's the name of your studio? Sorry, I've got the net wrong name here. It's a uh, creative studio. Creative uh, studios. Okay. Based out of Hamilton. Yeah. Well, congratulations on, uh, on this. It is very cool. People who have seen these photos, I, I, I honestly can't remember seeing too many photos that were not actually of haunting things, but that were so haunting. These are, these are amazing pictures. Thank you so much. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there are pictures of course that we've seen of horrendous things that are haunting, but this is, you know, everybody was fine. Your, your model was fine, but this was, it's unbelievable to think of sitting on the deck of these ships under the, the sunken shipwrecks up at Tobermory and doing this in the, the lighting for this is just incredible. Yeah, it it all worked out really well for us. It was we kind of went into it initially as a joke. Um, it was a pandemic joke of we, you know, maybe we should just wear our air tanks and scuba gear, and maybe we can all <laughs> hang out and shoot again. Um, and then it turned into well, let's actually shoot underwater. And then that turned into well, maybe I could make this a bucket list thing and bring it right to the shipwrecks in Tobermory because it's a place I had always wanted to go. Um, so yeah, it all, it all worked out really well. Did you know it could work though? And, and the only reason I asked that is because you know, anyone who has ever been underwater, I'm not a scuba diver, but you go down not very far and light starts to disappear very quickly. Did you know this was going to be doable? Yeah, we had done shoots in pools and stuff before, and I, it, I'm not the first person to take portraiture underwater. Um, so I was prepared for the depth and losing color and having to bring lights down there to bring back those colors. Uh, the one thing that was uh, not exactly as I expected is we picked the summertime for the shoot, figuring the water would be warm, not realizing that by that time <laughs> in the summer, all the ice in the northern Great Lakes have melted and is now in the Georgian Bay. <laughs> so it was yeah. quite cold. Yeah, I that, that was one thing. As soon as I saw these pictures, I was like, okay, I, I assume you were wearing a wetsuit taking photos, but uh, but your model, Chiara, uh, that was rough. I, I got to imagine that was rough for her to be doing this just in a in a small white dress. Yeah, it was incredible. Like I said, right when we, you know, we did a practice day in shallow water and I actually had two models. The one model said, it's not happening. It's too cold. <laughs> and I told both of them, both of them, um, you know, no pressure. If it doesn't work out, we'll just go for a fun dive. It's still something fun for us to do. Um, but the first day Sierra did really well. Um, and then the second day we went down to actually do the shoots that I had planned on doing. And at one point she was down underwater for 30 minutes and it was actually myself and our safety diver, Marisha, who said, you know, that's enough. We don't want her down here anymore, just in case she gets hypothermia or gets sick or anything. Um, but she was a trooper. She was the one who had the most, uh, drive of everybody and mm. wanted to stay down and just get those shots. When you were doing this, did you know that you were setting a record? Was this part of the goal to set a record or was it afterwards that you discovered that this was the deepest anyone had ever done this like this? Uh, it was a hindsight thing. Um, the shoot was just, it was simply because we were all artists and models and creative people and we wanted to do something together. And this was a way for us to be able to still do it safely during the, you know, the climate of things, um, during the pandemic and everything. So, um, I didn't know it was a record. Uh, I was told it might be a record. And then that's when we, we started having the conversation with Guinness that then set the bar mm. for it. I have much more ambitious plans now that I've done that. Shoot I was going to ask you that. I was going to ask you, what, how do you, oh, well, I was going to say, how do you top this? How do you bottom this would be the, I guess the, the better description. What do you do? Yeah. So we've been, 
I've done a number of different shoots now. I've understood the like how the lighting works and how far we can get it to travel and then the temperature. And we practiced over and over. Um, so now in September, I'm actually in Virginia right now, driving back up to Hamilton and we're going to start prepping again and we're going to do a hundred feet in the middle of September. So, um, not, not to beat the record, but because there's a place at a hundred feet that I really want to bring a model. <laughs> so it just all kind of worked out. Right? That is, that is, before I let you go, I didn't even know that you would be allowed I, I don't know about elsewhere, but in Tobermore, I didn't even know you'd be allowed to go and do something like this to be on the shipwrecks. Yeah, I actually had to get permits. So I worked with Parks Canada um, and I, years ago, I worked for uh, Fisheries and Oceans, uh, Canadian Hydrographic off the, off the waterfront there. And they said, like, I kind of went with them to figure out how to be able to do it safely because you're allowed to dive them, but touching the wrecks and preserving you know, mm -hmm. sunken history is, is very important. So I definitely had to jump through some hoops to make that happen, but everybody was really willing to work with us. So that was cool. It is, uh, it is a remarkable, if people have not seen the photos, I'm telling you, they are, as I say, I don't know a better word than haunting. Uh, the spec has a piece, uh, that's online today. Hamilton photographer, Branford model set Guinness world record for deepest underwater photo shoot. Uh, it was back in 2021, but just, I, uh, recognized by Guinness, uh, go look up the story because you'll also see the photos there. Some of them anyway, uh, they are amazing. Steve Haining, who took those pictures, Steve, way to, uh, congratulations, way to go. And thanks for joining us this morning. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Uh, they are pretty amazing. They, they really are. It's, uh, uh, it, it looks like a doll sitting on almost the wreck of Titanic. It is just, it's amazing to look at. Anyway, go take a peek. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Now we're going to talk about ribs. At the Burlington Rib Fest, I really have to start eating breakfast before I do this show. I'm making myself starving here. Uh, Brent Pasht and Jay Bertle are with the Burlington Rib Fest, which begins on September the 1st, as in tomorrow. Guys, how are you this morning? Morning, Scott. We're great. Thanks for having us. Excellent. Uh, as I say, this is, uh, this is something that I know a million people always look forward to every year. I did not realize though that and maybe I did realize it. I didn't realize you guys were the largest rib fest in Canada. That's how you bill yourself. Is it really? Yeah, well, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. We're Canada's largest rib. We were the first really, uh, club to bring the rib, uh, rib experience up here in the, the same way that, uh, you would have seen in the States. Yeah, no, I mean, there's so many of them now. There's so many places around the two ribs. So it's amazing that this is, this is number one. Um, tell me about it. What is, uh, what is going on? Cause I know that there's, it's, it's, I mean, we'll get to the ribs in just a second because that is, I know the, uh, uh, the main event, but, uh, what else is going on at Ribfest this weekend? Well, we're really excited. If anybody's driven by Spencer Smith Park, uh, we've been we've been at it in down in the park all week. We've uh, been loading in. We have 16 rib teams this year. Um, we're really excited about our expanded Midway Magical Midway's Family Kids Zone is going to be down there in the park for all your kind of end of summer carnival uh, carnival fun. Don't have to go down to the exhibition. You can just come down to Spencer Smith Park in Burlington. And we have a really exciting night planned on Friday night with uh, our return to the 80s with. Chalk Circle images in Vogue in the box on Friday night. 
That is, that yeah. is definitely, for someone who grew up who was a child of the 80s, that is, that is definitely a throwback. To, I was looking at your entertainment lineup, and I have to say I was gr- glancing, and it looks great all through the weekend. And then I got to Sunday, and on the entertainment stage, it was Mike Stevenson, and then Rib Judging Results, and then Hot Buttered Soul. And I went, wow, they found a band called Rib Judging Results. How perfect is that? <laughs> no, 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 no. That's, uh, I think that's actually the results of the Rib Judging. Although if you could find a band named that, that would be even better, too. <laughs> Jay's uh, Jay's the front man on with that act right there on uh, the rib judging results. <laughs> Let's talk about ribs for a second because uh, I know one of you guys was on with me a year or two ago. I guess when. Um, uh, I think it was you guys when uh, we were talking. It was both we, of us, yeah. Okay, in COVID. And at that time, it had to be a drive through thing because, you know, you couldn't get out and you couldn't be around other people. And I remember thinking, how many people are going to have the most wonderful smelling cars after this when they're driving and spilling some sauce on the seats? And, you know, normally you're not happy with spilling stuff in the car, but if I got to drive around with my car smelling like ribs, I, you know, I'm okay with that. Uh, we're back to the normal though. And you say 16 teams coming in. That's That still has to be, uh, entertainment is great. Midway is great. That still has to be the lure, though, right? The ribs. Oh, absolutely! It takes up a uh, majority of our of our uh, space too. So it, it that is that is the attraction. That's the reason we are the, the largest. Is, is number one reason is is uh, is that is that we have more teams than than most other uh, events. Uh, um, more than mo- much more than most, and and the smell, just the smell downtown. And again, I, I, I mentioned this last year too, but I'm a vegetarian, but. <laughs> That's but still, right. even the smell now, <laughs> uh, I just, you know, it almost makes you want to go back, uh, but you can't escape it downtown at all. So that's not so many, uh, yeah. That's, but, that's Jay, yeah. who's the vegetarian, right? <laughs> yeah, but you gave me an idea. We were talking about the smell in the car instead of those little hanging uh, yes. trees. I should, we should get some cut out riblets uh, with the smell of, uh, Rib smoke and barbecue yes. stuff for the cars. Maybe if we can get those uh, get those ready for the weekend, we'll try. Or just a service where you have someone with rib sauce all over their hands just come and wipe the steering wheel for a while just <laughs> well, to rub it all in. I don't think it'll be a problem. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not. Okay, so Brandon, Jay being the vegetarian, I'll, I'll let him off the hook for here for a second. Let's go to you for a second here because I'm guessing that over the years you've done this, you have eaten hundreds of now of pounds of ribs tell me what the secret is when if you see me you'd know well Uh, (laughs) when you're when you're diving into one of these because there are good ribs there are not good ribs and there are great ribs what is it that makes a great rib oh i think you know you could you could write a book and you could start a debate that'll go on for months about what makes a good great rib everybody has their preferences which is what's great about this event right we have 16 rib teams and they cater to everybody else but i think the key is just the long smoke time uh you know but everybody's technique is a little bit different uh, you know there's Sauces. almost there's no two there's no two two rib teams that are really alike in there but jay just said it's it's the sauces a lot of times is Mm. what uh what really differentiates things no jay absolutely that's the to me that's the vegetarian throwing for me is i'll i'll go i'll do all the sauces and just do them with fries or 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 a cob of corn or something else so you still get that same experience same flavor uh and that's what they're selling down there too and and they do sell a lot of the sauce because people right away realize the differences amongst a lot of the ribs are are is that is their proprietary Mm. sauces 
and you're just giving me a great idea, Jay, which I hadn't thought of, which is why do you need the rib? Just throw a, a throw sauce on a on a on a corn on the cob. That I'd not thought of before. Sure, fries or whatever, but right. a corn on the cob. Sure, why not? Well, well, exactly, a corn on the cob, or you know, corn dogs. We, you know, mm. you know, we talk about it being a rib fest too, but we do cater yeah. to, you know, we cater to vegetarians as well, and we have there's halal options. Uh, uh, you know, one of the teams down there you can you know, halal corn dogs. So you know, if you can. You can put some sauce on that, and and uh, and you can just enjoy the rib rib experience that way. Oh man, you know, as I say, uh, we got to stop doing this on the air where I'm <laughs> far away because just talking to you guys, I you know, every time it's like it's a good thing my stomach is far enough away from the microphone. You're not hearing the grumbling right now because uh, well, we'll have to come in next year with a tray of ribs for you. Oh, let's make that <laughs> let's make that a plan. Yeah, absolutely, let's make that a plan. Uh, Brent Pass and uh, Jay Bertle from Rib Fest, Burlington Rib Fest, September first to fourth, so Friday to. Monday down at Spencer Smith Park. Although, as I say, if you are driving anywhere around the Burlington area, the smell will probably be like Sam the Toucan in the Fruit Loops. You just follow your nose, <laughs> and I'm sure you'll find it. Uh, guys, thanks for joining me today. Good luck this weekend. Hey, Thank thanks you. so much. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. If you've been listening to the show all through the morning today, and I hope you have, or at least jumped in when you woke up, you have heard talk on the news about maybe it's time for masks to come back, or are we heading towards a mask return for a new type of COVID, a spin-off, or whatever else? Are we heading, and I say this with, you know, with dismay, even as I ask the question, are we heading for a return to masks and other things like this because COVID is going to hit us again? Dr. Don Bowdish is professor in the Department of Medicine at McMaster and executive director of the Firestone Institute for Respiratory Health. Uh, Dr. Bowdish, thank you for doing this today. Thank you so much for having me. I, I'm almost hesitant to even ask the question because I know what answer I'm praying you say, but I'm not <laughs> sure you're going to say it. Um, where are we going with this? Well, I think we're still in a period of some uncertainty. So sometimes the waves that start happening in the U.S. and the U.K. are not as catastrophic in Canada. And partially that's because we have more of our people vaccinated. So sometimes, uh, for example, there was a BA2 wave in New York City that was causing people some serious concern. And it just never really manifests to, to the same severity. So the good news is we don't know. The bad news is things look pretty grim. So we tend to make judgment calls about what our cold and flu season is going to look like based on what happens in Australia and New Zealand, because their winter ends just as ours is beginning. And what they had was sort of that triple demic that we had last year where they had lots of RSV, they had lots of influenza um, and lots of COVID. And it caused a lot of strain in the healthcare system, lots of healthcare worker absences, which, you know, have impacts across the whole healthcare system, family doctors, et cetera, et cetera. Now, if you ask me to look into the crystal ball <laughs> based on that experience, I would say we're in for a tough year, hopefully not as catastrophic as last cold and flu season where McMaster's Children's Hospital had lineups from the emergency room like I have never seen in my entire career. Uh, so not quite that catastrophic, but we also have tools that the Southern Hemisphere doesn't have. So we have a new vaccine that hopefully will get into arms before this wave really, really, really takes off. Uh, we have a flu shot campaign. And so if we can get those two uh, things done, we hopefully can avoid some of the worst and maybe avoid needing the masking. But to be honest, it's a little unclear why we wouldn't include that in some high-risk healthcare systems mm. already, cancer wards, uh, people who are immunosuppressed, et cetera. 
I think a lot of people know this, but during the height of COVID, Canada had essentially zero cases of the flu. I know there were the odd mm-hmm. one, but I mean, it basically disappeared and, and I'm not being hyperbolic here. I mean, it was gone. The mm-hmm. reports was were gone. almost mm-hmm. none. The concern was that once people got back together that, well, maybe your immunity was going to be low now because you hadn't had it for a while or kids were going to get it more. Did we have it last year or are we still expecting that we're in that place where a lot of people haven't yet dealt with that Mm -hmm. so their body is not ready to fight it so it's going to be particularly bad for them? This is a really great question. I'm glad you asked it because the flu and RSV have two slightly different ways of, uh, of infecting us. So in the Southern hemisphere, it was really surprising that they had a second really bad RSV year in a row, in a row, because we had thought, just as you said, especially for kids, once they had to get through that really difficult first exposure, they're usually okay the next time, but yet they had two really bad years in a row. So it's a little bit hard to explain why that would be with influenza because the strains differ so much year to year. There's a little bit of protection sometimes, but not really substantial where we really saw problems was um, pregnant women not getting vaccinated because of vaccine hesitancy and all the concerns and things like that. And so babies being really, really vulnerable. I think one of the things that people don't understand is that when pregnant mom gets vaccinated, she passes on some of that protection uh, for a a significant amount of time for those babies. So mom wasn't seeing RSV. So baby was maybe losing some of that protection and mom wasn't getting vaccinated for influenza quite so much. So babies were having an issue too. So challenging, (laughs) very, very challenging to get everyone up on their immunizations to help prevent what we saw last year. So if you are a parent and your kid is heading off to school, what are you more worried about for your child then right now of those three? Which is, is it, is it COVID? Is it RSV? Is it the flu? Which one are you more worried your kid's going to land? Well, in truth, none of us have a crystal ball about what's going to be particularly bad for our kids. So for example, kids with asthma, a bad flu year can be really catastrophic for them. Uh, Young, young kids, usually under five who get RSV are at risk of hospitalization and having a serious RSV infection puts them at risk for asthma for the rest of their life. And then COVID we know can infect some kids and cause some long-term health consequences. So again, you know, you may be one of the lucky people or your child may be one of the lucky people who has no ill effects or has a mild infection, or they may have a severe one. And unfortunately we don't really get to know that until it happens. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, on the other hand, they have to go to school, you know, they have to go to school. They will get sick. This is just a fact of life, but you can help sort of stack the odds by making sure they're vaccinated. See that, and we got to go, but that that's one of the things, and I, I, you may make a really great point at the end there. They will get sick. That's one of the things that seems to have been lost in the last couple of years mm-hmm. is that I don't tell me you're, you're the expert, not me, but getting sick mm-hmm. is not the end of the world. We've gotten sick. Kids have gotten sick forever. It seems that we've got a, almost a new level of panic. If your kid gets sick, <gasps> like, what am I going to do? Kids have always gotten sick. It's not the end of the world if they get sick, is it? No, no. I mean, a serious illness doesn't do anyone any good and you want to That's avoid different. it. Yeah. A common illness is not so bad. And I think, you know, one of the things that was really eye-opening last year was the Tylenol Advil shortage. 
because probably we were preventing, we didn't know we were doing this, but your child gets sick, you give them you know, cold and flu medicine, their fever goes down, they start eating and drinking again. We probably prevented a lot of dehydration in a way that stopped kids from needing to go to the hospital. So one of the things to keep an eye on too are stories about whether we're gonna have another shortage of cold and flu medicine, because that probably led to quite a few of these hospitalizations of kids getting so sick that they needed medical attention. Dr. Don Bowdish, uh, Professor at McMaster and Executive Director of the Firestone Institute for Respiratory Health. Uh, always appreciate having you on. Thank you for taking My time this morning. My absolute pleasure. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode and make sure you rate and review.